We are all doing some learning, especially as a congregation. We are learning what it means to be in ministry with our children and with our youth, and that it involves all of us random people, not just those who are hired uh, to do youth ministry and children's ministry. You can see behind me something that might look familiar to you. Uh, This is the way the sanctuary is set up when we have a wedding. And some of you have actually been married in this sanctuary. If you have, would you raise your hand if you actually had your marriage in this sanctuary? Some of you actually had your marriage in the sanctuary and you also had as a symbol of the two becoming one flesh, the unity candle. How many of you did that? You had a unity candle in your order of worship. I've actually invited Barbara and Keith Crockett, if you don't mind coming up at this time. Is that okay with you? Um, This is their 50th wedding anniversary. Just this weekend, they've been celebrating that. Yes. So come on up. And I think it's really appropriate, if you don't mind, to reenact the two becoming one. There you go. And if you can do it just like if you had a photographer taking a picture, and you take the two candles out, each of you, and sometimes these candles were lit by the mother or the parents of the bride and the groom, and then you light that unity candle, the two becoming one flesh, which doesn't mean that you cease being yourselves, so you put those candles back in the holders, and there you go. So I guess it stuck for you too, huh? Yeah, very good. Thank you. Very intentionally, we have this visual in front of us today because the most pervasive metaphor for our relationship with God in Scripture is marriage and the two becoming one. In the Old Testament, you hear again and again in the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, comparing Israel's relationship with God as a marriage and Israel's betrayal of that relationship as adultery. And then when you get into the New Testament, Jesus is talked about as the bridegroom. The church is talked about as the bride. We get to the very last book of the Bible, and you see this quote in Revelation 19, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. We have been learning about prayer this summer from all kinds of teachers. And our teacher today, we have two actually that lived at the exact same time. Um, John of the Cross was a little younger than Teresa of Avila. But beginning with Teresa of Avila, this is uh, someone who lived in the 16th century. She was a, a nun. She, they lived in Span- Spain, and she was a Carmelite. They were very committed to contemplative prayer. At that time in the 16th century, the, the order had pretty much strayed from their calling. They weren't really praying the way that they committed themselves to pray. And uh, as, as she grew in her life as a Carmelite nun, she started reading the writings of Augustine from the 4th century in his book Confessions, and she was struck by the intimacy he described in his relationship with God. And she wanted that for herself. And so she began to think of the spiritual journey the way Scripture talks about our spiritual journey again and again, as growing up into adulthood, falling in love, getting engaged, and getting married, and becoming one with the triune God of love 
an amazing metaphor. She would teach her sisters, and she would teach them this. Your spouse never takes his eyes off you, daughters. See, he's only waiting for us to look at him, as he says to his bride. So Jesus is not only the Lord that we follow, Jesus is also the bridegroom with whom we become one. An amazing picture. And so we are invited by Jesus, the bridegroom, to enter fully into the heart of God, the heart of the triune God, and to go deeper and deeper in this love relationship. One of the most radical books in the Bible, right in the middle of the Bible, is the Song of Solomon. And if any of you have read it, you should be amazed, stunned, perhaps shocked. Because it is a love poem, and it is sensual, and it is erotic. And it is celebrating the love of two young lovers who are engaged in getting married, and they are all over this garden, running around seeking each other with all kinds of metaphors about sensual and sexual love. And I want to read to you something out of Song of Solomon 7 just to give you a picture of it because it's not just a picture celebrating the reality of male and female and sex and everything that comes with couples coming together as one, but it's also this window into our relationship with God. Song of Solomon writes, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the country. Let us spend the night in the villages. Let us rise early and go to the vineyards. Let us see whether the vine has budded and its blossoms have opened and whether the pomegranates have bloomed. There I will give you my love. It's beautiful. This love poem celebrating young love, and also this incredible picture into our relationship with God. God is the lover. We are the beloved, inviting us deeper and deeper into God's heart of love. Teresa of Avila was praying for and longing for somebody that could work with her because her teachings, this radical teaching about intimacy and coming into intimacy with God and sharing that intimacy in prayer was not well received in her day. She was a reformer. And so she discovered John of the Cross. That's what he came to be called later. He also was a friar, a monk, Carmelite, committed to prayer, 27 years, her junior, And when he met her, he was stunned by just her relationship with God like she was with Augustine in his book of Confessions. He learned from her, and then he eventually became a spiritual director for the sisters that she was teaching and leading. Now, he understood, truly, the relationship with God as, once again, bridegroom and bride. That's the language he used more than anything else in one of his first poems, because Teresa of Avila was a writer. She was named as one of only three women doctors in the church because of her writings. She wrote stories about our relationship with God, but John of the Cross wrote poems, much like, much like the Song of Solomon, love poems. And in his poem called The Living Flame, he writes this. Ah, gentle and so loving, you woke and wake within me, proving that you are there in secret and alone. Your fragrant breathing stills me. Your grace, your glory fills me so tenderly. Your love becomes my own. Describing bride, groom, bride, lover, 
beloved coming together as one in our heart and then drawing us into God's heart and transforming and forming us to be loving like God. But in that journey of coming into this oneness with the triune God, there are necessary times, painful times, and even necessary times when we experience God's absence. Listen to our scripture this morning from Song of Solomon, chapter 3, the first two verses. Upon my bed at night, I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The dark night of the soul is not every unhappy experience that you have in your life. The dark night of the soul is when in your relationship with God, instead of experiencing that river of delights and that oasis and that, that thirst being quenched by God and Jesus as a well springing up to eternal life, you experience a dryness. Instead of the light of God's presence, you experience darkness. Instead of presence, the presence of God, aware of God's presence with you, you experience absence. It's a very painful time. John of the Cross lived in a time in history in Spain where when he was growing up, he was around a lot of death in his family, in his community, in his world. He was around a lot of torture. He was around a lot of suffering. And then later in his life, because he was trying to reform the Carmelites and they didn't appreciate it, they threw him into a monastery prison and tortured him, literally, and then put him in solitary confinement where there was no light. All that he had was a crack, and he could hear the river flowing outside. That was it for months at a time until he finally ran away. But as he experienced this pain, he also came to realize that it was something very, very important in his journey of love into God's heart of love with the bridegroom being the beloved and God being the lover. Barbara Brown Taylor has written, she's a wonderful writer and a wonderful preacher. I love her writing. She's written a recent book called Learning to Walk in the Dark, The Value of the Darkness in Our Spiritual Lives. And she has a chapter on the dark night of the soul. And she writes this about John of the Cross. For him, the dark night is a love story full of the painful joy of seeking the most elusive lover of all. And one of the central functions of the dark night, he says, is to convince those who grasp after things that God cannot be grasped. In John's native Spanish, his word for God is nada. God is no thing. God can only be encountered as that which eclipses the reality of all other things. There are two ways he describes the dark night, the dark night of the senses, where all of our normal ways of praying and the words and the self-directed prayers we have don't work anymore. But then there's a worse darkness, the dark night of the spirit, where you don't have a sense of God being there for you or loving you. All that you sense is God's absence, even God's abandonment. And this is a purging Not all dark nights are brought by God, but as you journey with God closer and closer into God's heart of love, there will will come times when you will have experiences that God is using 
to purge you of your own preconceptions about God, of your own false attachments, of your own spiritual pride. And this dark night of the senses and dark night of the spirit does that for us. All of our notions about God, all of our words about God need to be purged away so that we can just let God be God on God's own terms. Augustine writes, if you've understood, (laughs) then what you've understood is not God. If we think we get it, we know who God is, we figured it out, then that's not God. There is an emptying that has to come. That's the dark night of the soul. Where you're just trusting God's attentiveness toward you, God's love for you. You are walking in faith and trust and confidence with no evidence, no emotional evidence, no insights. It's painful. It's hard. God's only hidden. Feels absent, but not absent. And so we learn to rely on faith without the evidence. The person who experienced this that we would know the longest is Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, who we know about mostly because of Malcolm Muggeridge writing about her in the 1970s, Something Beautiful for God, um, and she, she's come to be the quintessential embodiment of a saint in our minds. Uh, she won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1979. Um, but 10 years after she died, she died in 1997, her spiritual director released some of her letters, which, as a spiritual director, I have to say I question this because I don't think I'd want to do that for any of my directees. But anyway, she wrote very confidential things to her spiritual director about how much she was agonizing in her interior life. She was struggling. She experienced 50 years of darkness. After all the joys and all the delights of her personal relationship and visions, and she had amazing mystical encounters with Jesus, then there was this interior darkness. I want to read to you one thing she wrote. I did not know that love could make one suffer so much, of pain human but caused by the divine. The more I want him, the less I am wanted. I want to love him as he has not been loved, and yet there is that separation, that terrible emptiness, that feeling of absence of God. They say people in hell suffer eternal pain because of the loss of God. In my soul, I feel just this terrible pain of loss, of God not wanting me, of God not being God, of God not really existing. That terrible longing keeps growing, and I feel as if something will break in me one day. Heaven from every side is closed. I don't know about you, but I remember reading about this when it happened, and it horrified me. I thought, oh my gosh, if this is happening to Mother Teresa, we're all doomed. She's having this experience. It was interesting how others picked up on this. The anti-God lobby basically said this is proof. Um... Basically, that God does not exist. The one writer, Christopher Hitchens, called her, quote, a confused old lady who ceased to believe. Some wondered if actually she was suffering clinical depression. But then you look at the diagnostic manual on clinical depression, the symptoms don't really match what she was describing. Some wondered if it was the assassination of her father. Her father was killed when she was nine years old, and maybe that abandonment was what she was experiencing now in prayer. 
but really the writers who are looking through the teachings of a Teresa of Avila or a John of the Cross with the eyes of faith are realizing that, yes, she suffered, but she was not clinically depressed. She's describing a dark night of the soul and this invitation into a deeper mystical union in the heart of God's love. And she writes, As for myself, I just have the joy of having nothing. Not even the reality of the presence of God. No prayer, no love, no faith. Nothing but continual pain of longing for God. Nada. That's John of the Cross's Spanish word, nada. Nothing. No thing. You know, being led more deeply into the mystery of God where all your cherished notions of God don't work anymore. All your ideas about God. All the words you used don't work anymore. And actually, Barbara Brown Taylor says, you know what? When all the words grow tired and old, and they do in the church, maybe there's something valuable about nada, about no thing. Interestingly enough, Mother Teresa grew to love the darkness. She wrote... For the first time in these 11 years, I have come to love the darkness. For I believe even now that it is part, a very, very small part, of Jesus' darkness and pain on earth. No emotional satisfaction, but still regularly gathering in God's presence out of this longing for God, but especially in this confidence, growing confidence coming from God, the mystery of God, of God's attentiveness and presence to us. Night, we are not in control. We have less to take hold of with our minds. We have less to take hold of with our emotions. And so we don't flee this, but we lean into it in prayer. James chapter 1 writes this my brothers and sisters whenever you face trials of any kind consider it nothing but joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete lacking in nothing and maturity looks like this Teresa of Avila John of the Cross we move into this oneness with the triune God and the heart of God's love, deeper and deeper and deeper, and God is holding it all. John of the Cross, as I said, was a writer of poetry, love poetry. And after that horrific year, when he was in that Toledo prison and being tortured and in solitary confinement and only in the dark, his prayerful reflections, I want to read, if you don't mind, this eight-stanza poem that he writes about his own dark night of the soul. And you get a sense for his understanding of the darkness as also part of the love relationship with God. This is what he writes. One dark night, fired with love's urgent longings, ah, the sheer grace, I went out unseen, my house being now all stilled. In darkness and secure, by the secret ladder disguised, ah, the sheer grace. The darkness and concealment, my house being now all stilled. On that glad night, in secret, for no one saw me, 
nor did I look at anything with no other light or guide than the one that burned in my heart. This guided me more surely than the light of noon to where he waited for me, him I knew so well, in a place where no one else appeared. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. Upon my flowering breast, which I kept holy for him alone, there he lay sleeping, and I caressing him, there in a breeze from the fanning cedars. When the breeze blew from the turret, parting his hair, he wounded my neck with his gentle hand, suspending all my senses. I abandoned and forgot myself, laying my face on my beloved. All things ceased. I went out from myself, leaving my cares forgotten among the lilies. Wow. That's amazing love poetry, a la Song of Solomon. Written out of the dark night of the soul with this confidence, just like the Song of Solomon, that that love relationship will be consummated. That the lover is faithful. The beloved is beloved. Even with nothing else, nada, nada, nothing else to go on. O guiding night, O night more lovely than the dawn, O night that has united the lover with his beloved, transforming the beloved in her lover. One writer said that this is not a honeymoon bliss, but a golden wedding anniversary bliss. Yeah. And on John, John's deathbed, they came and they read the prayers for the dying, and he said, no, I don't want that. Read the Song of Solomon. Read that love poem from Scripture to me. I have a friend who um, was confiding in me recently. She is a prayerful woman, and she was saying that now she's finding her prayers, which she's gotten used to praying every day, a centering prayer, just being still before God and aware with no words of God's presence. She said, you know, they've become dry for her, and she's not experiencing God's presence. And she started crying when she was saying this to me, and I thought, hmm, I... That sounds familiar. That sounds like John Teresa's dark night of the soul. And this is a friend who's become very familiar with what's called a labyrinth. It's a prayer walk. Some of you may know about this. It looks like this. It's not a maze. You have one on your order of worship. And I invite you, even as I'm talking, to take your finger to find that opening at the bottom and to just follow the path as it winds around winds all the way around, all the way around until you get to the center where you dwell in God's presence. And then after feeding yourself on God's presence, you go back out the same path and it winds its way around. And for those of you that have walked the labyrinth, when you walk those twists and turns, you turn like this. And as I've walked the labyrinth, I'm realizing that there's times that my back is turned to the center and I'm way out on the edge and there's times when my face is turned to the center. But in all those turnings, the twists and turns of my life, the times of absence, the times of pain, the times of joy, the times of presence, all of it is held. All of it is held by God. Not just in the center. All of it is held by God. Last week, Leslie Rose and I went up to Grace Cathedral, and they have a, a labyrinth there, and we were meeting a friend who just came on staff there, and I had the chance to walk the labyrinth while we were waiting for her. Just beautiful. It's such a great place to walk the labyrinth. And as I was walking, I, there were people just walking across the floor because they have no clue what's there. 
And this one couple was there, and they were having their picture taken. And I'm assuming it must have been an engagement picture or something. So they're plopped right there at the entrance of the labyrinth, you know, and, and the photographer's on the ground, and he goes, okay, kiss each other. Okay, do this. this. Look at this picture. Okay, kiss each other again. Do this whole kind of, you know, photography routine. And here I'm trying to prayerfully walk the labyrinth, you know, and I'm thinking, can you guys just move out of the way? I mean, are you not even aware this is a prayer walk? And then as I was walking, and this is so true of prayer, God uses all of what's going on around us in our prayer life, I was aware of this theme of marriage. Not only that couple, but Leslie was standing there nearby. Leslie's engaged to Bill. They're getting married in November. And then we're in Grace Cathedral, and I'm very aware of Scott Pomerink, who now goes to Grace Cathedral, grew up in this church. He just got engaged. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, Scott's engaged, Leslie's engaged, this couple's engaged. Okay, God, you have my attention. And here I was in this labyrinth of twisting and turning, sometimes facing the light, sometimes facing the darkness, sometimes feeling totally aware of God's light and God's watering oasis in my heart and life and sometimes feeling dry as a bone. And in all those turnings, all the twistings and turnings, I am held. I am held. And as I mature and lean into those dark nights, when all my notions of God are gone, when nothing seems to be working in the church and around me in God's creation, God's heart of love He's calling me into this deeper, deeper, deeper union and maturity with the triune God. Let's pray. Oh God, we lift to you now the times of frightening pain and absence and abandonment, of feeling even your wrath, feeling your back turned to us. And yet, in Jesus Christ, you have shown us your face and your heart and that nothing turned you away and that you are here now in the presence of your Spirit, holding us, holding all things in the fullness of your love, Invite us even now, each one of us by name, may we hear you call it, into a deep, deep communion and intimacy that was not just for Augustine, was not just for Teresa, was not just for John, was not just for Mother Teresa, but for every single one of us. Lord, lead us into this marriage you have accomplished for us in Jesus our lover, our bridegroom. May we know how beloved we are to you. And may you set us free. May we receive the gift of the dark night of the soul and be set free. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.